Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, who is calling from the remote office uh, in Charlottesville. How are things there, Frank? Uh, things are great here, David. The uh, temperature is only, uh, hold on, I'm checking. It's 105 only 80, degrees. It, no, it's only 84 degrees Fahrenheit today, which is actually quite balmy. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 so uh, I've actually... Um, adjusted to such extreme heat that a day in the low 80s, which previously would have killed me, is 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 something I welcome. But now things okay. are great. Thank you, David. Thank you very Next much. Next trip is to Death Valley to see if you can do it. Right. So this week we're going to talk about a uh, relatively new uh, political organization, but one that that I think has some interesting antecedents and historical roots. And that group is a is a group founded in 2001 called Moms for Liberty. 2021, David. 2021, thank you. Um, it's an organization that was founded uh, during, in response to the, of the pandemic, uh, but they've become uh, involved in a number of political issues, including um, book banning, uh, book uh, curriculum review, if you want to talk about that that way, uh, questions about uh, critical race theory uh, in schools, uh, diversity movements in schools, and what have you. Uh, and from this relatively recent organization, they now have something in the order of 300 chapters and more than 100,000 members and have gotten the attention of prominent Republican political leaders, including Trump and Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, uh, et cetera, at their recent uh, convention. So we thought we would talk about Moms for Liberty and try to put it into some kind of historical context. Yes, Nikki Haley recently identified herself as a mom for liberty. Um, you know, when she, when she addressed the organization, I do want to, uh, say one thing, I express one note of kind of, um, I don't know whether it's caution or perspective. So, so yes, they've got nearly 300 chapters in 45 States and over a hundred thousand members. Um, this is a big country. It's got 330 million people, a hundred thousand members out of 330 million people. Isn't that much. Now I think the ideas they're espousing and the uh, kind of culture war issues that they are um, most deeply committed to and engaged in have wider resonance than than in that organization. Mm. So, so I, I think the organization um, perhaps has, has influence beyond its members. But I, I would say a hundred thousand members sounds like a lot. But when you think that the country has three hundred and thirty million people, it's important to kind of have some pers perspective about that. I think. Yeah, and no, I think that that's definitely the case. I mean, I think the. But the fact that you know these important political leaders are are at least recognizing this organization as being worthy of of addressing, I think, speaks to their um, you know place in the current political discourse. So, what is it about like moms, Frank, uh, that that I think you know, I think part of that their 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 political power connects with this idea of what motherhood means, uh, what kind of role motherhood has in the in in American political language. How far well, we to trace this far back? How how far back does 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 as American as mom's baseball and apple pie? How far back does that go? Well, that's the expression, isn't it? You know, hmm. um, the, the, you know, sort of motherhood. Your mom is kind of inherent to Americanness. Now, of course, moms are not unique to the United States. Yes, I was thinking kind of... no, nowhere's baseball or apple pie, but um... <laughs> yeah, but 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 the political resonance of motherhood. 
um, goes back to the revolution itself and certainly as associated with citizenship. So as some of our listeners will know, in the immediate aftermath of independence, a concept emerges called Republican motherhood, which actually stresses that in a republic where um, citizenship is dependent on virtue and the health of the republic um, is based on the virtue of its citizens. Mothers in particular was, were seen as inculcators of virtue. So in the new republic, mothers were expected to raise their children if they were sons to be good, virtuous citizens and their daughters to grow up to become republican mothers like themselves. So going back to the founding of the republic, there was a kind of association of motherhood with politics and a particular kind of politics and the sort of assumption that women are morally superior to men and yeah. that women uh, are as inculcators and, and keepers of virtue have mm. a unique place in kind of the American Republican experiment. And we see this running throughout the 19th century in your period mm. in the run up and we see it in movements uh, all kind. It gets used in all kinds of ways. Mm. Uh, um, uh, you know, so the movement against slavery, as well as the movement defending slavery, um, you know, use this language of 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 womanhood, but particularly motherhood, um, in throughout American history. And so, you know, moms for liberty, um, you know, and the use of mom, um, not mom, mom in this, yeah, you know, <laughs> mom is kind of. It is so it's the you know soccer moms moms are uh, moms is you know everybody's got a mom or most people have moms right and mm -hmm. and everybody loves their mom or most people love their mom <laughs> um you know so, so moms are ubiquitous in all societies but mom the concept of mom is very potent in american mm -hmm. culture but it has had this political valence as well that goes through so so i think the name moms for liberty is on one hand, it's it, it always struck me when it when it first uh, entered the vernacular a couple of years ago as being a little bit like Republican motherhood, a kind of modern mm. uh, updating of it. But as we're going to see, and as you know, and 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 um, uh, it has a particularly conservative political valence. Um, it, it's a variation uh, on the right at the moment. But momhood, if you mm. if we can call it that, um, is not while always political is has not historically necessarily been confined to the left or the right it's a, you know both the left and the right have appropriated the language of that um at different times and and one can think of you know uh, um in contemporary parlance you know moms demand action is a gun control group that is largely of the left mm -hmm. um it doesn't quite get the same kind of political attention or media attention as moms for liberty in part because they're less aggressive and confrontational in their in their um in their act activities than than moms for liberty but there there is we see this on both the left and the right so one of the things you, you just said about the early republic though that i think that it's worth sort of drawing on is you know there there is this sense that women are the repository of, of virtue uh you know throughout the 19th century and that that women are more virtuous than men that women have protection of the home embedded in their um, and children and what have you in, embedded in their uh, remit. Um, but in terms of the politics of it, you know, the question, you know, women were excluded from the political sphere for the most part in the 19th century, except on those questions that were considered moral questions, right? And that women were allowed to participate in political debate and in, be involved in political organizations, not when they had to do with parties and politics in, in the traditional sense or elections, 
But when they were campaigning for moral issues, that was a space that women could get involved with. Um, and I think, you know, Moms for Liberty is sort of feeding on that thread, even if it's, you know, no longer relevant by the political exclusion of women, right? So you have lots and lots of women who are involved in, in reform movements in the 1820s and 30s and 40s. Um, by the you know, largest number of women are involved in the temperance movement, but as you point out, um, you know, the abolitionist movement and other reform movements are, are mostly women, in fact, like in terms of the rank and file members of these organizations, they're, they are, sometimes they're led by women, but they're oftentimes the majority of people who are doing the, the real work. And temperance is one of those issues where you, and alcohol reform, I think it's one of those issues where you see this motherhood theme and repeating over and over again. So you have, you know, women in the 1830s and 1840s who are saying, look, we as, as mothers are, are opposed to alcohol consumption, excessive alcohol consumption, because of what it does to the family and what it does to children. You see this again in the 1870s and through the end of the 19th century with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which I always want to say Women's Christian Temperance Union, because that sounds better to my ear, but it's Women's Christian Temperance Union, which is the big anti-alcohol organization in, in the late 19th and early part of the 20th century. Uh, you know, and, and the leader, the, the most important leader of that group was a woman named Frances Willard. And she talks about, you know, not only fighting alcohol, but also therefore women should have the right to vote. She talks about the home protection ballot and that women should have the right to vote because it's linking this sort of protection of children with suffrage and, and, and using that sort of mode of argument. And obviously more recently, we've got groups like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which you, which you mentioned earlier, um, you know, which is, is, you know, the founding story of which is about a woman whose daughter was killed by, by a drunk driver in, in Texas. Uh, and then she founds the organization to help push for, for legislation um, you know, and drawing not only on her personal story, but just drawing on this idea of motherhood as being being having a special a special virtue attached to it, um, and and therefore you know using that on the political balance. Yeah, and what's interesting, David, I think in that is what we see is going back to the founding of the republic, um, but particularly in the nineteenth century, as you just laid it out so well, mm -hmm. is we see um, women participating in what might be called the cultural war. So mm -hmm. although they, they're they denied kind of uh, a role in partisan politics for, for much of the period in question, um, they are involved in, in cultural issues and, uh, you know, of the, uh, whether it's, whether it's temperance, whether it's slavery, whether it's other social reform movements um, that today would be kind of encompassed, uh, encompassed in the cultural war uh, under the, under that heading and the phrasing we use today. And so in that sense, I think, Moms for Liberty and Moms Demand Action are very much of a piece with a longstanding American tradition, frankly, mm. and, and, and could be seen in that context. Moms for Liberty, you know, which are self-identified, who self-describe themselves. This isn't kind of two professors, two liberal professors, you know, mischaracterizing mm. them. They describe themselves as a conservative organization and a conservative movement. So we, we, we can use mm. that language. But Moms for Liberty is very much a an organization well that while pursuing these kind of contemporary culture war issues and therefore i think 
you know, of a piece with that history, has also done so from a particular political perspective, which is a conservative, which is of the right. And that too has a history. And David, do you want to say a little bit about that? Yes. I, I know you know a lot about the aftermath. So of the that, uh, and I'm, there, there's been a long history, I think, of, of white conservative women's movements that, that sort of go back, um, you know, well into the 19th century. Um, there's two, and, and and you see a lot, especially in the, the post-World War II period, uh, but let's, let's go with the 19th century stuff first. And there's two organizations that are founded more or less at the same time. They're doing similar things, although uh, slightly different kinds of, of, of things. Uh, one is the Daughters of the American Revolution, uh, which is established in 1890, uh, and the other is the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which is established in 1894. Um, and they're both organizations that are, you know, tying the membership, which is, is tied to ancestry. And so these are organizations that are made up of, of white women, usually upper middle class white women. Um, and one of the objectives of, of, of both groups is to teach a, a you know, is to shape um, education. Um, they're doing a variety of things. You know, the, you know UDC is putting up you know, most of the monuments or a lot of the monuments in the American South to the Confederacy. Uh, but they're also very interested in education. And, and UDC is, is trying to, and the DAR, is, are looking at textbooks, looking at what's getting taught in schools. I think there's a strong similarity there between what that and Moms for Liberty are doing. Um, the, for you know, the UDC, their, their main educational objective was to try to persuade children that the Confederate position on secession was right, that the Civil War was not about slavery, that slavery was a banal institution. They even have a catechism for uh, on the history of, of the Confederate states they give to children. They have, they review textbooks that are taught in schools. Uh, there was a woman by the name of, of uh, Mildred uh, Lewis Rutherford who writes a book called Measuring Rod to Test Textbooks and reference materials. So, you know, a guide for how do you go and adjudicate whether this textbook is pro-Confederate enough. Um, and if they're not, try to get them out of schools. Um, the UDC is doing similar things. Well into the 1950s, there's one point in which a UDC committee uh, in, in Texas in the 1950s goes and investigates all the books. And they conclude that a lot of the books that were being used in Texas were really secretly socialist. Whether they probably, I mean, I don't think they were, but they, you know, they're, they're looking for code words and looking for bad influences uh, on children, um, you know, and, and these are, are obviously very different organizations in some ways, but they, they share this, this common supposition that I think that, that you know, their roles as, as mothers, and you know, most of these women identified as, as mothers, you know, had this moral obligation to protect a certain kind of history, and then to shape what goes on in schools to reflect that. Um, I think we see a lot of that happening right now with Moms for Liberty and other groups going to public school libraries and demanding that certain books being taken off the shelf or certain things not be taught uh, and what have you. Um, so I think there's a real thread to that. Um, the other similarity that, that some people have drawn recently um, between especially the UDC and Moms for Liberty is that both groups 
present themselves in a very kind of, there's a respectability politics to both of them. They both sort of present themselves as well-established, you know, the members of them are, you know, they're well-dressed, upper middle class, white women um, who are sort of going with certain valence of, 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 of respectability, but at the same time, they are associating both implicitly and explicitly sometimes with some pretty scary, sometimes very violent people. Um, so the Proud Boys and the Moms for Liberty have, have tangoed a few times in terms of, of, of doing events together. The UDC is in some ways responsible or partially responsible for the rebirth of the Klan in the 1920s and for lynchings before that. Um, and so, you know, I think there's, there's a ways in which the, those groups, you know, the UDC in particular has some very strong resonances with, with things that's going on with Moms for Liberty. Yeah, and the DAR is interesting because the Daughters of the American Revolution, because mm -hmm. as you say, it's founded at about the same time. Slightly less explicitly political hmm. because the revolution should be uncomplicated as far as a um, something all Americans agree on, right? Whereas the Confederacy <laughs> Sorry, is a little yes. more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me, uh, and I, I think that, but the DAR, of course, founded in 1890 and the UDC four years later. This is the moment, of course, when the massive so-called new immigration was starting between 1890 and 1920. And these movements, particularly the DAR, tracing a lineage back to the revolution is a way of saying, yeah, we're, we're kind of real Americans, unlike mm. all those Jews and Italians that are arriving in New York and the Poles and so on, um, um, you know, in their millions every year. Uh, and so there's a kind of not terribly well hidden subtext there that's quite mm -hmm. important um, in terms of the founding of the DAR. The DAR has a kind of curious, um, it's it's less explicitly aligned with political violence in the 1920s, for mm -hmm. example, than the than the UDC is. But it really, you know, they they um and they accept some black members relatively early on, but they don't allow um Black performers at their events. That famously, Marian Anderson was de was uh, denied um, was was refused uh, the opportunity to sing at a DAR event in the 1930s, and then she was, uh, and that caused Eleanor Roosevelt to resign her membership of the DAR and invite uh, Anderson to sing at the Lincoln Memorial in 1939. Um, but the DAR has tried to say, "Oh no, we're above politics," and I think it's it's. I think it has been a political organization and its politics have been um, not terribly well hidden, at mm -hmm. least in those early decades. And they really have kind of they started to struggle between and among themselves in the 1970s and 80s in terms of broadening who is eligible for membership in this organization, because, of course, lots of. Black Americans are descended from people who fought in the American Revolution or supported independence uh, uh, during the American Revolution. And, and so they have broadened their membership as a consequence of that, because early on, their membership was not unlike the UDC, as you've described it, David, mm -hmm. sort of upper middle class white women. And of course, the the people who, who supported the revolution were more diverse than that. And the DAR has come to... Um, come to kind of reflect that, although it, it, it's been a long, slow journey. And I think today uh, it's probably associations are less politically explicit or toxic than they, than they have mm. been in the past. So the DAR's kind of history 
especially its origins, are similar to the UDCs. But I think the UDC, because of the controversy of the lost cause then and now, mm. has always been a little bit more explicitly political than the DAR. Oh, that I think fair? that's definitely yeah. I think that's definitely fair. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely fair. I mean, they they would say they're apolitical, but anybody who says they're apolitical or about politics is making a political statement inherently by by saying that. That's right. Just um, like whenever anybody says it's not about the money, it's always it's about about, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, definitely uh, for those of you interested, definitely read Karen Cox's book on on the, on the UDC because uh, I think it's it's a really an excellent understanding of what's going on there. Um, but I think you see a, a revival of of this kind of conservative womanhood in in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and I want to plug two other really great books: uh, Nichelle uh, Nickerson's uh, Mothers of Conservatism, uh, which came out about 10 years ago, uh, and Elizabeth uh, McRae's book. Uh, Mothers of Massive Resistance, which came out I just think three or four years ago, um, and what these two books look at are, are both you know, women who are involved in conservatism uh, in California and in the American South uh, mainly, uh, and the ways in which you know white women are articulating a, a certain mode of conservatism um, to oppose communism, to, to especially root out communism, socialism in, in schools, but also to oppose uh, integration. Um, and, and that women were you know, extraordinarily active in school boards uh, and other sort of local political action um, that, that often hasn't gotten recognized. You know, we think of the 1950s housewife as being a very particular um, kind of stereotype um, from sitcoms or what have you. And, and I think what these two books demonstrate is, is that, that there are lots and lots of, of conservative white women who are extraordinarily politically active during this period, um, sometimes in, in you know, reactionary kinds of ways. Uh, one thing that people often forget, uh, the, I think Nickerson points this out, Joe McCarthy in his famous speech where he sort of says, look, there's all these um, communists in the State Department. He says that at a Republican women's club. Right. You know, and so if we think about where does McCarthyism start, you know, it starts with a bunch of conservative women um, in West Virginia um, in 1950. Um, you know, and, and there's an example that Nickerson gives uh, uh, in Pasadena also in 1950 of, of the school board hiring a, a new superintendent, a progressive guy who's interested in new educational ideas and interested in diversity and all these other kinds of things that were, were relatively new in 1950s and, and women in Pasadena, conservative women in Pasadena were sort of rising up and, and organizing themselves to oppose what they saw as being you know, veiled socialism emerging in their schools. They get the superintendent fired and you know this sort of sets off a sort of chain reaction of conservative women in other communities going to school boards and, and claiming the sort of political authority uh, as, as mothers to, uh, to be able to see communism in ways that, that men sometimes couldn't. Um, you know, and, and I think that's uh, an important, you know, thinking about the rise of conservatism in the United States in the, in the 50s and 60s and, and beyond. Um, you know, I think historians are paying much more greater attention to the role that yeah, that women played both as as foot soldiers and as um, you know intellectuals and and, and sort of progenitors of this thought. I mean, I I think that's 
all true. I have nothing to disagree mm. with, David. And I think you did a really good job of summing that up. Having said all that, okay. Are we surprised that there are conservative women's groups in the United States, right? No. no. I mean, there, no. there are liberal groups. There are moderate groups. There are, you know, and, mm. and I wonder, and, and we talked a little bit of, about this off air before we started, um, whether we're giving too much attention to Moms for Liberty. Uh, do mm. Moms for Liberty matter all that much? There's some pretty outrageous, if you Google Moms for Liberty, you'll find some some pretty outrageous um, statements and actions. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is an important civil rights organization in the United States, has identified Moms for Liberty as an extremist group. They did that back in June. So that that's a not insignificant um, development. But do they actually matter? I mean, in other words, um, you know, the 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 current state of political discourse in the United States, such as it is, is pretty polarized, at least on social media. And and maybe too. But, yeah. OK, well, yeah, but I think it's amplified by social media and, and Moms for Liberty, you know, or people purporting to be members of Moms for Liberty are, are threatening school board members and disrupting school board meetings. But, you know, the Tea Party did that a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, so, so I, I'm, I'm wondering whether, while this does have a history and, it, and it, it, it's tapping into that history of a particular association with motherhood, mm-hmm. with a certain type of politics in the United States, are we blowing this out of proportion? Well, I, I have two responses to that, which are in some ways opposed to each other. One is, I think, you know, if you're looking at at, at the banning of, of, of books from school libraries and all these other kinds of things, if you're opposed to that kind of censorship um, and you see that as being problematic, that then, then this is serious. The idea of censorship in an era with the internet seems weird to me, but um, uh, I think that is a, a, a something worth concerning about, whether that's and policies on uh, LGBTQ children and, and, and education and all these other kinds of things you're seeing in, in schools across the country. Um, if, if, if that's something that you think is being is important, um, I think that then this group is worth paying attention to. Um, there is some debate about exactly how big this organization is and how influential it is. I mean, and the fact that Trump and DeSantis are paying attention to it seems like it makes it is important. But you know, the numbers we have for how many members of this are the numbers that they tell us. Um, and right. the, the organization that you know that we don't know where the funding is coming from. Um, there could be, you know, whether this is a grassroots organization or an astroturf organization, I think it's too early to say. Uh, but I think it's definitely become part of the political discourse and it's having an impact on, you know, lots of local situations and, and communities where, where these groups have gone to school board meetings uh, and, and to PTA meetings and those kinds of things and, and made things uncomfortable for librarians and teachers um, and for students who, who um, don't share their political uh, perspectives. Um, 
So I think it's important in that respect. But on the other hand, whether this actual organization itself is, um, you know, worthy of, of the same kind of analysis that, as the UDC does, I guess we'll find out in a few years. Right. Yeah. So I've got a couple of responses to, to your responses, if I may. So, so yes, the censorship issue is a serious issue. Of course it is. Um, but I'm not sure that Moms for Liberty is driving that so much as people who purport to be Moms for Liberty are exploiting it. So, so in other words, people would be turning, be turning up at school boards to make these demands, um, regardless of whether Moms for Liberty existed or not. I think. Yeah, um, but but, so you know, hardly, people, okay, but saying you're part of an organization gives that sort of a gravitas. I don't know, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then the 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 point you made about you know presidential candidates, Trump, DeSantis, uh, Nikki Haley taking an interest in this group or addressing this group, which they have. Well, that's electoral politics, and you, you know this is a group of people who have self-identified as conservatives. They've said they're they're a women's group, which of course mm. is an important demographic that Republicans have struggled to attract um, in large numbers, and so that you, one can see the the calculation there. But mm. I mean, I guess you know, are they? Is that any different from presidential candidates going to CPAC or going to the? Iowa State Fair, as they did in the past couple of weeks. I mean, it, it's, you know, you're trying at this at this stage to identify people who are potential supporters. So I don't know how much I'd invest in that. And I guess my bigger question about this is, what do you want to do about it? In other words, if this is a problem, if this group represents a problem and is an extremist group as identified, you know, so, so what is your solution? I don't have a solution. But I mean, is, you know what? you got to answer censorship by opposing it and and mm. and censorship usually fails because of course kids want to read stuff they're told not to read mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and yeah. so on so on. i'm not sure these are, i'm not sure unpleasant as as some of this behavior is that mm. it that there's an answer to it well i don't think there's an answer you know i think as a political phenomenon i think their, their presence is interesting and i think um you know, worthy to put in a historical context. And that's, you know, uh, which we hopefully tried to do today. Um, you know, but I think that it does sort of speak to this very interesting place that that certain versions of conservative motherhood have, have had very deep roots. And obviously there's that there's class embedded in that and race embedded in that, you know. And so when they talk about moms for liberty, they're not all moms for liberty, they're upper middle class white conservative women for liberty and that has um an interesting way of, of subsuming moms as a category which is obviously a much bigger category of people um there was a controversy recently frank uh, i'm curious what your thoughts were with this uh, and and the aha weighed in on this i think uh Scheer may have weighed in on this as well uh where during their con- con- conference they had a reception at the uh, museum of the american revolution uh and people at various points were, were upset about that because of this uh because this group has been labeled as a as a hate group by by at least the southern poverty law center what's your response to you know the aha sent a not quite an angry letter but a, a questioning letter to the to the museum yeah and sheer the society for historians of the early american republic also did because the sheer and i'm a member of sheer mm-hmm. i didn't go as to that conference which was in Philadelphia this year, uh, but they were meant to have a reception at the Museum of the American Revolution and canceled that reception because of the association with Moms for Liberty. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm tired of this stuff. I mean, 
<laughs> I mean, Shear's been involved in a series of political controversies since the summer of 2020. Hmm. Its membership has fallen from over 1,000 to 600. The organization itself might be in trouble, in part because of perpetual cultural war hmm. um, participation. And, you know, I believe that historians should be informed citizens and do, you know, and 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 act accordingly. I'm not as confident that organizations of historians should necessarily engage in partisan politics, because I think that that's, um, first of all, it feeds a conservative critique of the mm. academy. You know, we're playing into the into their hands when we do that. Um, and secondly, you know, maybe um, associations of historians ought to do the work of academic scholarship and, and conferences should do that. So, so I, I, I understand the the concern, and I'd like to know what happened at the Museum of the American Revolution, and I don't know. I have to confess. Mm. I, I've heard two versions of events. One is they didn't think it was a big deal. The other was, well, as a public history space, they felt they couldn't say no to this request. I don't know. I, I, I simply don't know. I, I do mm. not know. I do know that members of staff from the Museum of the American Revolution were upset about this and refused to to work there during the event and and um, in the time around it, and I think that's a serious matter. But I'm 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 not so sure that the AHA and Shear should have actually waded into this. I'm, I, I, what do you think? Um, I'm I'm intrigued by by why the museum chose to do it, and I think the yeah. AHA letter simply said you should be thoughtful about who you allow to rent your space because I think it's, you know, the museum is a, 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 an important collection of, of materials, you know, and I think renting your, allowing people to rent your space who are of, um, which many you know groups that, you know, they wouldn't rent the space to the Proud Boys, I don't think, right? And so, where they, they clearly have a gradation of, of people they do and don't rent the space to. Um, so, so to be thoughtful, thoughtful about that. Um, so, I don't know. Uh, but, but Moms for Liberty are not the Proud Boys. They have not advocated the violent overthrow of the government of the United States. They have not. I mean, I, and I know the stories. I mean, I know that members of Moms for Liberty or people who identified as members of Moms for Liberty have been aligned with people from the Proud Boys at times. But as an organization, so so let me let me make the other case, which is, you know, they're an organization you don't like because you don't like their politics, but they mm. are they're an organization of women who are interested in history. They're certainly interested in history yes, yes. and how history is taught. How to be sure. And and although they represent a different perspective from many of the members of the AHA or Shear, mm. yeah. why can't they have a reception at the Museum of the American Revolution if the Museum of the American Revolution rents out social space, space. for social yeah. events? So it's it's that's a, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean it that they are not the equivalent of the Proud Boys. It, you know, as yet in terms of what they have done as an organization, they are not. Okay. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I think it's a complicated question. Um, you, you know, with regard to Sheer and the AHA and just culture war issues in general, mm. every time one of these things flares up and it's about once a month, I'm increasingly the view, you know what? 
you don't have to respond or take the bait every single time because that's put us in a in a situation where um we're in a constant state of of conflict often over stuff where the, the stakes appear high but they're not necessarily as, as high as they appear in any given instance you mm. don't always have to take the bait because that often amplifies the people you disagree with the moms for moms for liberty got far more attention because of the protests over their reception than they would have if they just held their reception yeah i i think your point about you know bait i think is 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 well articulated um i guess the, the issue is is you know not responding also in some ways then has a whole equal set of issues yep yeah i mean not responding so, is a choice it's a yeah, choice it, it, it but uh right so we will uh look and see in the future to see how the moms for liberty whether this is a a flash in the pan um you know uh, we or whether this is a more long-standing organization uh, but it definitely is an organization that has some, um, as we've talked about today, some, some interesting antecedents and, and roots to it. That's right. I think it'll be interesting to see whether they become the UDC of the 21st century and they exist for mm. generations or they're a kind of group that emerged and was given a, ba a name or, uh, or took a name. Um, and the, the kind of sentiment they believe in will not disappear. I'm sure mm. about that, but it might they might be called something else five years from now to be sure okay well we'll check in five years from now find out yeah. uh time's time for last drops frank what you got well speaking of the history of american women <laughs> jeez okay i want to talk about the un's women u.s women's national team in soccer because um as many people will know the women's world cup is is coming to an end the final will be played on sunday uh in australia between uh spain and and england and there was much um, sort of I've been I've been it's been very interesting to me to observe the response to the U.S. women's national team in the World Cup and their failure because they were knocked out relatively early by by Sweden um, a week or so ago um, here in the United States. And as avid listeners of this podcast will know, I have been critical of the U.S. women's national team in the past. Um uh particularly their behavior at the last world cup um which they won and what's interesting to me is now that i'm in the united states and seeing first of all talk about culture war how one feels about the u.s women's national team in the u.s political context is very much determined by one's political affiliations for most people that seems to be so there was great delight donald trump Baited, you know, Megan Rapino on Truth Social after they lost the penalty shootout to to mm. Sweden, basically saying, you know, blaming Megan Rapino for her terrible penalty shot, um, a penalty kick, um, and so on. And so, so on one hand, I hesitate to weigh into this because I do not want to engage in that particular front of the culture war, and I'm not intending to do so. There has also been a lot of media coverage after their defeat in the mainstream press about the kind of the end of an era and the changing of the guard and the decline of U.S. women's soccer and the end of the world and blah, 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 blah. Frankly, everybody needs to just relax. Um, 
what I think if one puts this in, in a historical context is we have seen, and I've we talked about this in the past, basically the standard of US, uh, sorry, of women's soccer globally has risen markedly in the past 30 years. Mm -hmm. And the early dominance of the United States, which was largely a function of Title IX, which we've talked about before, mm -hmm. you know, that's leveled off. Um, in part because of Title IX, because a lot of the a lot of international players have played in U.S. colleges and universities as well, and we've seen an improvement. So, to some extent, the early dominance of of the Women's World Cup by the United States is not unlike the success of Italy during the early uh, iterations of the U.S. Uh, sorry, of the Men's World Cup um, in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and so I, I think what we've seen is a leveling off. So, you know, get used to it, America, because you're not going to dominate anymore. So um, it's less a story of U.S. decline as it is everybody else getting better. I think so. But I also think, you know what, sometimes you lose. And the United States, the infrastructure for women's soccer in the United mm. States remains very strong. And the, United, the American women will remain very competitive and will probably win. They might win the next one. I mean, this is this is the way of sports and people need to accept that. Mm. And frankly the hubris among some supporters of the u.s women's national team is pretty grating so take the politics out of it you know as somebody who's been outside of the united states for three decades and therefore immune to most of this and find i have found the women u.s women's team pretty arrogant in the way they behave i wasn't terribly heartbroken when they lost to sweden now as everybody knows i have swedish connections so this yeah, was so a kind of I, either I, way I, I, yeah it was a win-win situation for me um but maybe a little bit of humility wouldn't be the worst thing but it is not the end of the world and i don't think it's the end of any era and everybody just needs to relax and it would be really nice apropos of what we've just been saying if we could just enjoy soccer with or football without worrying about you know where that put one on the political spectrum so mm. i'm sorry the u.s women lost the u.s women will come back it's not the end of the world and basically the women's world cup is great and viva España. let's hope spain went on sunday so anyway <laughs> Dave, right. david what's your, what's your last drop uh well i want to recommend a, a video game uh and I, I want to recommend it to everybody but i think it's a video game actually you need to play frank it not i know you're not much of a video game person, but this one that I think is made for you. It's called Black Haven. It's a game that was made just a couple of years ago, but it's free, so you can go and, and download it on your machine there uh, on Steam. But the premise of the game, um, it was made by a, a both so an independent game company with with some academics. Uh, is that you are uh, an intern at a historic house museum. Ah, plantation somewhere in Virginia, somewhere not far from uh, where you are now, uh, and you are an intern there. You're, you're the, the character uh, you play is a uh, an African American woman, a college student who is doing her internship there, uh, and and she learns about the uh, well, I won't spoil the the narrative plot points uh but she she learns things about the the family that lived there and some differences between the way that the uh, museum foundation was presenting the history of the family and the ways in which the actual history of the family uh unfolds in the in the story so it's a interesting uh example of 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 how to do historic interpretation uh and deals with with the revolution and slavery and civil war a little bit 
um, and, and historic homes in Virginia and, and, and Monticello gets a shout out uh, at, at various points in time. So, so it's, it's supposed to be a fictional house museum, but it's a, of a type uh, that you may be familiar with. Uh, it sounds like it's of a type of the place I'm familiar with, but I'm I'm slightly confused about the actual game. What do you actually do? So, uh, and, and, and and do I want to know? So, so do you like? Are you the intern? You are the intern, right, and, okay. and 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 the premise of the game is that the uh, museum is closed for I think Flag Day or something, um, and 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 the manager of the site has given you tasks to do while the museum is closed uh, and you have to do a variety of things and there's a gallery of exhibits and there's a archive of the family's papers and there's this house uh, that had a big fire in it and uh, and, and they've reconstructed and and the character does various things as a game it's actually it's it's, it's more of an interactive experience than a game um, I would imagine because a game where you're an intern sounds pretty boring, actually. <laughs> no, no, I think you need to really open yourself up to the, the, the world of, of, of how diverse gaming has become. Uh, but but for those for those of you who have a Steam account, you can go and download uh, Blackhaven. It's a it's as a game. It's pretty short. It takes about two hours to play uh, from start to finish. Um, Frank is looking at me like that's like far longer than I want to do. I'm used to Pac-Man. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, compared to, you know, games that people spend hundreds of hours in, this is a relatively uh, brief experience. But, but uh, an interesting example of how, uh, you know, one can use a different venue for, for thinking about, about historic interpretation and, and what have you. Interesting. Okay. All right. Thank you, David. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. All right. If you say so. next week. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. Bye, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.